This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Intercooler podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 154 of the Intercooler podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Uh, now, this week, we're talking about the 9-11, as we are going to be um, a handful of times throughout this year, because in September, Porsche will celebrate the 60th anniversary of the 9-11. So it's a big year for the 9-11. Um, and we're going to be talking about the history of the car um, as we get closer to that date in September. Um, this week, we're starting with the, the early tale of the 9-11, how the 9-11 came to be, and some of the most special air-cooled variants of the 911. There's some really good stuff to get stuck into there. Um, a little bit later on, we're doing What Goes Up, which is where we have a look at the market, see what's going on in the market. Um, but before that, we're talking all about air-cooled 911s. Uh, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. This is the first in, I think, what's going to be three episodes this year, Andrew, between now and September, um, in which we discuss in some detail, the Porsche 911, um, and hopefully tell, I mean, you can't tell the full story of that car, can you? But, uh, you know, kind of from start to finish, explain how it came to be um, and discuss its significance. And so with this episode, we're talking about the very early days of the 911 and indeed the years preceding the 911. Yeah, and and the point being is that um, in September 1963, Porsche showed a new car called the 901, um, and it became the most successful sports car in history, easily. Mm. I suppose ultimately, and, it's, it's how did that happen? That's the point of these yeah. episodes, isn't it? How it did is that how happen? did it happen? How did it get from yeah from there to you know sixty years later to where mm. we are where we are today? When you know the nine eleven has been such a staple of you know even if you've never 
been in one, um, you know, let alone driven one, let alone owned one. Um, everybody knows about the 911, don't they? Mm. It is, you know, it's, it, it is the one sports car. It's, the, it's possibly the one car that anybody who professed to be any kind of enthusiast would think that they knew quite a bit about. So I guess one of the purposes of this is to just do a, a slightly deeper dive, isn't it, into yeah, how it came about and how it evolved, try to explode some myths about it, try to ha- hopefully say some stuff which not everybody knows, um, and to celebrate 60 years of this most extraordinary motor car. There is something about a 911 that people generally understand, they get it, you know, they, they might not have any interest in cars at all, but in, in my line of work, people will often say to me, so what's the best car you've ever driven? Um, and... I mean, the real answer to that is probably Maserati MC12 course, the track only one, because it was fantastic and I loved it. Um, but the answer I tend to give is Porsche 911. And if people really don't understand much about cars, they'll go, oh, I've heard of that. That's a good one, isn't it? And if they dig a bit deeper, I can go, oh, but maybe it's a, a 911 GT3, the more hardcore one. And then if it turns out they really love their cars, I can go, OK, well, it's a 911 GT3 RS 9972. And then, and then you've given them an answer that satisf- satisfies their inner geek. Um, but it just has this sort of uh, broad appeal, or at least understanding, um, that I, I don't I, think I, many other cars have. I th- well, I think what is most well, one of the things we'll talk about today is that how a design as flawed as it was mm. when it came out in 1963, you know, it survived at all. Yeah. Let alone longer than any other sports car um, in history. Let alone that it went on to do, I mean, in competition, which I'm not talking about today, that's another podcast all by itself. It did everything. Mm. You know, 911s and its derivatives won everything from, you know, the Monte Carlo Rally to Le Mans. Mm. And with a bit of Paris Dakar chucked in there too. Amazing. And it's been, you know, they, they are variously, you know, some of the most exhilarating sporting cars you could possibly imagine driving you know a modern gt3 rs is just ridiculous but at the same time they are also just the, the most usable daily hacks aren't they mm. Mm. um and you know lots of people just choose to go about their business in a you know a nice nicely spec carrera yep. and that's what they drive um you know, there's never been a car with anything like the breadth or depth of achievement over anything like that period of time than the 9-11. So, yeah, uh, the I versatility think, is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and I, and I think, am I right in saying, you're going to tell me I'm wrong, but am I right in saying that our very first podcast, 150-something episodes ago, which must be getting on for three years now, yeah. was a 9-11 episode? I, I think it's think number be- two. I think it's number, number two. two. Okay, but we haven't been back since. So no. I think it's been, you know, more than long enough. So, um, yeah, let's get on with it. Let's do it. So this is the first one, right? And we're talking about how Porsche got from the 356 to the 911. How did that yeah. happen? Um, yeah. And so, I mean, we have to wind the clock all the way back, probably to the, I don't know, maybe the early 1950s when Porsche was building this tiny little thing called the 356. Um, and... Actually, if you look at a 356 Coupe, you can see where the, the, the design inspiration for the 901, the original 911, came from, can't you? Because the silhouette is still there. The cannon tubes, they call them, the headlights, the raised arches are still there. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, but I don't think, I mean, because I think people think, well, yeah, 356 was, you know, a rear engine car powered by a flat formation air-cooled engine. Mm. So was the 911. So they must one must have somehow kind of evolved out of the other. Mm. It absolutely didn't. 
You know, mm. I think one of the most amazing things about the 9-11 is that when they sat down to do it, you know, let's not forget that when they started, you know, thinking hard, I mean, they started thinking about replacing the 356 in as early as 1952. Uh, but when they started really thinking about it in the late 50s, Porsche was only a 10-year-old company. Yeah. Um, and, and the ambition behind it was so great. Basically, what they decided to do was an entirely new car. We'll get into this. Um, from end to end, um, you know, body, engine, suspension, everything that is, you know, identifiable to you and me as being, you know, part of the major makeup of a car, they changed it. And what they wanted to do was to drive their brand up market. Um, and, you know, I, I think they thought that the 356 was a nice car in which to practice in, and they felt they'd done that. And, you know, let's not forget that in the 1950s, while they were you know, coming up with the, these ideas, they'd become an immensely successful racing team as well. Mm. You know, they hadn't won anything big because they didn't compete in, at the top level in terms of, you know, trying to fight, compete for outright wins at Le Mans. But they'd already been on the podium at Le Mans. They were already the sort of go-to guys if you wanted to go and win a, you know, 1600cc class in something. Um, you know, they'd, but you know, by the early 60s, you know, they were doing Formula One. They were, you know, the company had come a huge distance in a short period of time. And they thought, well, you know, we're ready now. Let's do something really, really big. Let's do something unlike anything else mm. we've ever done before. And the astonishing thing is, they kind of cocked it up. I'm going to get into this because, you know, a 901. I think everybody knows the story about how the 901 became the 911 because Persia objected because they trademarked all three-digit numbers with a zero in the middle. Um, it was a properly flawed car. It was, it had so many problems, mm. and yet somehow it it survived, and it's uh, it's an extraordinary story. So I think let's talk a little bit about the 356 and what its limitations were, and why Porsche couldn't just evolve that basic design. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a tiny little thing, isn't it? It's got um, a, li a little diddy four-cylinder flat engine with, what, 90 horsepower or something? Not a great deal of power. At the, mo at, at, at the most. <coughs> at, at the know, most, At the yeah. most. You know, that's what a, like a sort of 356B or C would have, you know, at, at the top level. Uh, the, I think the base engine, even quite late on in its career, had 60 horsepower. And in fact, mm. one of the design specifications for the new engine... Um, which the engine, which eventually, not the engine that they originally designed for the 911, but the engine that eventually went into it, was that it should have over double the power of that engine, of that 60 horsepower engine, but the same mechanical refinement. Mm. That's how ambitious they were being. And the one thing you could say about the 60 horsepower 356 um, is that it was a really mechanically refined car, and that's what they were looking at. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so 90 horsepower at the most. And that mm. engine will actually go into the 911 in what they call the, the 912 as a sort of budget special. Um, but, yeah, so um, as, you, as you say, it was a flat four um, air-cooled engine derived from the engine. I mean, probably with no parts in common anymore, but still derived from the engine of the Bean and the Beetle. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, that's, and, and that's just the engine, isn't it? The suspension architecture was... Um, a severe limitation as well for that car. Yeah, and, and also, you know, Beetle derived. Um, mm. You know, you had this you know, trailing link front suspension. You had swing axles at the back. Um, and, you know, one of the things that Porsche... Well, they recognised it in stages. They knew from the start that the front suspension had to go. And they twigged after a few false attempts that the rear suspension had to go too. 
So, you know, ask anybody today, ask anybody who knows about engineering what designing a suspension system is like. Then say, just imagine designing two completely different suspension systems, one for the front, one for the back, neither of which is a type you've ever done before. Mm. (laughs) That's a challenge. That's what they did. And surprise, surprise, it didn't work out. You know, it wasn't perfect from the off. So there were lots of, I think there were several prototypes, weren't there, in this phase during the late 50s, perhaps into the 60s, um, that Porsche experimented with. Just trying to, as you, you've written a story um, that went up last week, actually, on the app and website um, about uh, this era at Porsche. And you say the line you use um, is as Porsche groped its way towards the original 911. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't obvious, was it, that it should look the way it did, that it should have the engine it did, that it should have the suspension it did. All that stuff had to be figured out over time. Yeah, um, and, 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 and through a process of trial and error. Um, mm. And as the story I wrote goes into um, the car they came up with, in fact, they came up with quite a few different concepts, but the car they pursued the furthest was actually this concept. It was very different to an I-11. It was even more different to a 356. It was what they described at the time as a full four-seater. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you only need to look at the the 695. It has several other names. It could also be the 754, the 754 T7, the Type 7, and the T7. Yeah. Um, but this is a this is a prototype. Um, was it late? Was it very late fifties, or did it spill into the sixties? Both. Yeah. So it yeah. started in the late fifties, and it and it. I think they killed it in about sixty one. And so the point about this car is that it has a six cylinder flat uh, air cooled engine out the back behind the rear axle line. It has yep. um, from the forward of the A pillars. It looks like an early 911 doesn't it like an original 911 it does and it has the mcpherson strut front suspension mm. um the, and the, the reason that they did the mcpherson strut front suspension was um you know a, a couple of reasons that they use it to this day on every hatchback in that it's you know it's cheap um and it's easy to tune um but really they did it with the luggage space mm. um there was a perception that whatever this car um was it had to be able to take a set of golf clubs in the nose, um, and so that's why they did. It. That's why they threw away. And it was, you know, it was such a departure because if you look at the sort of front suspension that a three five six had, in its concept, it's the same front suspension that an Auto Union race car had in the nineteen thirties, designed by Ferdinand Porsche, and that's what they'd done, apart from some of their fifties racing cars. Um, but in terms of you know all the three five sixes, they you know they all just followed traditional Porsche thinking. Um, and that all went out the window. Mm. And actually, talking of McPherson struts, only now, or in the last couple of years, can you buy a 911 that doesn't have a McPherson strut at the front. Um, yeah, current generation GT3. I mean, yeah. and, and most of them, the vast majority still do. Yeah, it's amazing, Unless you buy a GT3 or a GT3 RS, you're mm. still getting a strut. Yeah, it is incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Um, so the key thing about this 695 and all its other various names is that um, it has, it doesn't have that, traditional recognizable 911 silhouette that no. sweeping roof line that goes down to the rear of the car um it has a longer roof and then a bit of a step at the rear screen yeah point a much being, taller roof too yeah the point being it should accommodate adults in the back seats yeah um and as we well know adults in the back seat of a 911 it's not really going to work is it <laughs> unless you're happy to be <laughs> extremely uncomfortable and it's a very short journey or you're absolutely desperate yeah well quite um and so, it, but for for a while, Porsche was considering making its new sports car a full four seater. Um, yeah, and, and 
it, and it is. And, and the reason for that, if you think about, you know, Porsche by the end of the 1950s, you know, they were getting into a bit of stick because, you know, cars like, you know, Jaguars, mm. you know, Mark IIs, um, that sort of thing, which were full four seaters, but which, you know, it came with a 3.8 litre engine with 200 and something horsepower. Blow the doors off a three fast, even a Citroen DS. Mm. <laughs> you don't think of as being a sporting car. Um, would easily outpace a three five six, um, and you know, and these were you know these were big four seat cars, and so I think that's probably the direction of of travel that they were going in until Ferry Porsche suddenly thought, well, hang on a second, and he did later go on to say, if we'd continued with that car, which is not a direct quote, but what he the essence of what he was saying was, that if we'd continued with that car, all that would have happened is we'd have come up with the same sort of car as everybody else, but done it worse because they knew how to do that and we didn't. Mm. Ah, it's a crucial moment. It's a turning point in the history of the 911, that decision is. to not pursue a full four-seater. It would have yeah. been such a different car. And it probably yeah. wouldn't have lasted for 60 years and had this global reputation. Um, and, and, sorry, and, and the engine too. So that mm. engine was a two-litre air-cooled flat six. So you think, oh, well, that's clearly the engine that went into the 911. Absolutely not. They developed this engine... Um, this two-liter air-cooled flat six, but with push rods actuating, operating the valves. And you know, as anybody knows anything about engines, you know, push rods, you know, come with problems. Um, you know, particularly they limit the speed at which an engine can turn. And you know, and if you think about how the 911 engine evolved, you know, the only way you could really get more power out of the push rod engine was just by, just by simply making it larger. And if you think about all the 911 went on to achieve and the reputational effect of that, all the, you know, stardust that got sprinkled down on showroom 911s from 911s, you know, winning races, winning rallies and everything. They'd never have been able to do that if it had the old pushrod engine. Because they'd Mm. never have been able to tune it. They'd never got the power out of it for it to be able to do all the things that it did. Um, And so giving up on that and actually going, no, we're going to do this properly. We're going to do this with overhead camshafts which means we can tune and tune and tune it um you know without that too there's no way the 911 Mm. would have survived or if it had they would have had to at some stage done a completely different engine for it uh if you want to see what the 695 looks like you just google it or get on the app and or website and there are some lovely images in the story andrew wrote but it has this it looks curious and actually it's kind of grown on me um over time but the, the moment you see it, I think it just looks a bit awkward, a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, it has almost, the, because of the way the rear roofline works, the rear screen, it has this almost boat tail type appearance. It's, yes. It's a curious thing. Yeah. Um, but from the, certainly from the front, you can sh- it, it looks almost pure 911. Um, so you're right. It's those two key decisions to design an overhead camshaft engine and to ditch the full four seat layout, make it just a two plus two. Yeah, those two things were absolutely key, weren't they? And it just yeah. means that Porsche basically it got the original 911 just right. In theory, <laughs> yeah, they, they got they, they got the specification yeah, of yeah, the yeah. original 911 just yeah, right. Yeah. The execution was somewhat different. Um, we should also talk about the decision to abandon swing axles. You mm. know, again, swing axles have been around. Um, you know, in Porsche design since the early 1930s, um, but they produce some. Um, because particularly under braking, um, because of the camber change, they produce some highly undesirable handling traits. Um, and also, um, 
they produced uh, packaging problems and everything else. And so they went to a, a trailing arm design at the back, a semi-trailing arm design at the back, um, you know, which had its limitations when we think of modern multi-link suspension systems and everything else. But, you know, compared to what they had before, it was, you know, it was, um, it was a, mu- it was a far superior, um, suspension system. And again, I think if they continued with swing axles, um, there's no way the 911 would have survived. They're all these little pieces of the puzzle. And if any one, one of them hadn't fallen into place, you know, we wouldn't be recording this podcast because mm. the 911 wouldn't have survived 60 years. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Or they, they might, you know, if they had put a pushrod engine in it, perhaps they'd have replaced the 911 wholesale a few years later. Well, exactly. And, and it's a different car then. Yeah. Mm. Whereas the 911, the 901, they launched in 1963. They didn't really replace it until the 996 mm. in 1998. Mm. Yeah, the yeah. 993 was a bit of a sort of transition car, wasn't it? Because it was still based on, well, still the well, original. Okay, so, so, so the, 990, yeah, the 993 had a multi-link rear end. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was the first one to go away from the semi-trailing arms. But it was still, you know, it was still an air-cooled flat six. It was still mm. absolutely a direct evolution. Mm. And, you know, the first time the 911 was replaced was with the 996. And everything, there is a direct link for evolution to evolution to evolution all the way through from 1963 to 1998. Mm. Well, yeah, until the 996, 993 went out of production. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, 35 years, one design. So it was Ferdinand Alexander Porsche, Bootsy, Bootsy Porsche, who Bootsy. was given the job of designing the original 911. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, so you can see how the design language, as it were, evolved from the 356. There is a kind of commonality, a familiarity there. Um, but the extraordinary thing about it is that even now, 911s are an evolution of that same appearance. Yeah. Even now. And it's, I, I suppose it's partly because it's a simple, clean, actually quite beautiful design. But it's also determined to great degree actually by the packaging by the mechanical layout of the car you think where the engine is you think how much space needs to be set aside for those little rear seats um you think about that low bonnet line it's it's all still fundamentally the same yeah and the reason that 911s in 2023 have their engines in the back is because that's where it was in the beetle before the war yeah and you put it in the beetle before the war um because you know it was expensive to have an engine at one end and your driven wheels at the other end it was space inefficient too and they hadn't figured out front wheel drive to any acceptable degree so what did you do and that's why so many cars so many cheap cars you know fiat 500s and, and you know that's sort of stuck their engines in the back because you could tuck them away in the back you get lots mm. of space inside nobody thought about you know crash regulations at the time not having an engine in front of you um and that's where it went and that's why it's where it is today. Mm. It became, you know, it's, it's, it's almost become an accident, iconic, isn't it? It's, it's become iconic, hasn't it? You know, the rear engine car, it, it sort of, it defines the 911. You, you know, I think we probably all think you could change just about everything else. But apart, you know, as long as it's still rear engine and a flat formation engine, then it's still a 911. Mm. Um, mm. And the but, reason it had a flat formation engine and the reason it's rear engine, it basically goes back to the Beetle. There were so many happy accidents in the gestation yeah. of the 911. And the name is another one. They, Porsche wanted to call it 901. You've already mentioned this. Peugeot yeah. said, uh-uh. Um, and so they changed one, one number and it became the 911. It was never supposed to be called 911. No, but, and the, now but don't it's you the think most that 911, famous name. Yeah, it's better. I mean, I, I, 
it just trips off the tongue better, doesn't it? 901, 911. Yeah. It also sounds less like a Peugeot. It sounds a lot less like a Peugeot. Yeah. <laughs> so, Frankfurt Motor Show, September 1963, they unveil yep. this thing. Um, yeah. Now, I wonder, did the world sit up and take notice, or did it seem like a little rear-engine curio from some barely known, well, it's not well, barely known, but some yeah. young car company? Do you, no, do you think, think the competition sat up straight away and thought, ah, oh, now this is something? Or did it take a while for that reputation to build? Well, I mean, I think you have to think of, you know, what that competition was. And I wonder how seriously people would have taken the 911. Jaguar. Did, did Jaguar look at it I mean, and go, see, Jaguar oh, no. had Jaguar had the E-Type. Yeah. You know, the E-Type had come out two years earlier, mm. you know, with a twin cam 3.8 litre straight six mm. and then porsche comes along with as you say this funny little car and i think that you know porsche was clearly a company which commanded an enormous amount of respect you only had to look at what it had done in the competition even by then to know that these weren't you know a bunch of you know happy-go-lucky clans yeah, yeah, yeah. um but no i don't think that you know in any way people looked at that car and thought oh shit that's the future mm. Mm. That's the bus, and we missed it. Mm. Um, no, I think they thought, you know, that's interesting. Porsche have replaced the 356 with a bigger, more powerful, more refined, um, more technically advanced car. Exactly what you'd have expected them to do, given the 356 mm. by then had already been in production. Well, I mean, it had been sold for, you know, a dozen years by then. Um, and so it was kind of like a logical evolution, not just for a car like the 356, but for a company like Porsche, which is still, you know, a very young company um, and still trying to find its way in the world and trying to push itself up market because, you know, that's where the money was. Mm. So I think it was, I think it was pretty much what people, looked, I think the 695 would have been a surprise mm. if Porsche had gone from making this, you know, this little two and a bit seat, tiny little coupe to a full four-seater, I think that would have got people's attention. And I think they probably would have thought, well, why are they doing this? Because there's so much other stuff like that out there. But no, I think, I think the 911 was just sort of, yeah, what, what they were expecting. And mm. then I also think that once people started to experience them, I think they would have relaxed even more because I, thought, I think they probably would have thought, well, this isn't a terribly good car. So you've been teasing this all episode. What is it then? What what is it about those early nine elevens that didn't sit well, they, quite right? Okay, so 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 they had all sorts of problems. Um, you know, a lot of them due to the due to the weight where it was and the shape. Yeah. Um, a rear engine car um, is is going to be more aerodynamically unstable um, than a front engine car um, because its centre of pressure is way ahead of its centre of gravity. Um, and obviously, with all that weight at one end, we know what happens. You know, it, the, the weight always. We've only got to play badminton. Look what happens to a shuttle cock in flight to know that the heavy bit always wants to go first. Um, and the engine turned out to be heavier than they expected, so there was more weight um, in the back. You know, back then, it is amazing to think of it. You know, the best tire they had for it was a one six five HR tire on a four and a half inch rim you know with early 1960s rubbers and it just wasn't up to it also this was a very powerful engine um you know 130 horsepower may not sound like much but back then um you know that was a lot to mm. put in you know a carb way i think i think the original cars came in at like proper din full tanks weight of about 1080 so a dry car would have been under a ton um the other problem they had, which I don't think they foresaw, was, you know, they did obviously, as all car manufacturers did, they did all their testing with prototypes and they were fine. But prototypes are made 
very to very very fine tolerances because everything has to be perfect and then they stuck it on a production line and those tolerances went out the window and they they discovered the car was unbelievably sensitive um to the way that each individual car had been mm-hmm. set up yeah. and you were getting things like cars which handled in left-hand corners completely differently to how they handled in right-hand corners um and yeah there were problems with the steering um you know the car i wouldn't say it was a mess but it's it was nothing like as good in reality as it appeared to be on paper or indeed as it had been on testing and that really is where the reputation came from because as you and i know once it was properly sorted and it did take them time they you know, they used to do things like without telling the customers they realized they obviously needed more weight in the nose but they suddenly well, they, they also realized was you couldn't just put weight in the nose it was where that weight was and you couldn't just put it in the middle of the nose so they did two things they actually put weights in the bumpers at either end they put like 25 kilos Whoa. in the front bumpers and they called them bumper reinforcements safety feature yeah cobblers absolute cobblers it was to try and balance out the car and they realized the weight had to be at either side of the car um another thing they did they went from one big battery which is in the nose of the car to two smaller batteries mounted at either side for exactly these reasons so they did all this stuff to try and balance out the car um and eventually in oh, when was it 69 so it had been around for a long time this just tells you how long it took them to sort this out um they extended the wheelbase uh now we know that a longer wheelbase car is uh a more stable car than a shorter wheelbase car and that was one advantage but actually the real reason they did it they extended the wheelbase without moving the engine yeah so they put longer suspension arms in so the back of the car went further back but the engine stayed where it was so it became essentially more mid-engine or less rear engine so the weight distribution shifted and that's why they did it um, so there were just all these things that they had to address. They had to address the production issues. You know, the tires, they, you know, originally a four and a half inch rim was the, was the widest tire you could use for one six five section tire. So and eventually they ended up using a five and a half inch rim. They went to a five and then they went to a five and a half and then they started using one eight five section tires. And over time, these problems started to resolve themselves. Um, but anybody who thinks the, you know, I've been lucky enough to drive a few, you know, 1960s short wheelbase 911s. And with the benefit of hindsight and all this retro engineering and everything else that was done both in period and since, they're brilliant handling cars. You know, you, you, we've, we've probably all wasted far too much time on YouTube watching on boards of maniacs driving short wheelbase 911s around Spa and yeah. they're sideways yeah, everywhere yeah. and they look like the, you know, the best handling cars that have ever been built. Yeah, they weren't always like that. Mm. It's taken a lot of time to, to get. It's taken to that a point. lot of time, um, yeah. and you know, if if you got, in, I mean, I can't remember how many nine hundred ones were built. I think there were like sort of seventy or eighty cars. I think it's eighty-two. I've got eighty-two. Eighty-two yeah. cars. Okay. If you got on one of those factory fresh, you wouldn't be driving it around Spa like that. <laughs> well, you would, but for a very short <laughs> yeah. period of time before it um, rotated. Yeah, I'm sure. So, so I mean, I, and it's, it's it's the ultimate nine eleven cliche, isn't it? So, what is it? It's a, it's a. It's a miracle of, you know, evolution over revolution or whatever, you know. Mm. And, and, but it's a cliche for a reason, because that's what happened. Mm. It mm. wasn't born that good mm. at all. It took time. It was made that good over time. And, and, and I, I guess Porsche didn't have a choice because it wasn't like they could just can it. They didn't have anything else. They couldn't go back to building the 356, although they did keep the 356 in production for longer than they expected to. I think 356s were still being sold in 65. Mm. which was you know a year and a bit after the 911 had been in full production 
but you know they couldn't they couldn't go back so they had to press on and i think probably within the company they realized that there was a great car trying to get out um and so they just had to go and find it and being Porsche being meticulous in their engineering and the way that they went about everything they just kept on chipping away at it changing this changing that um and eventually well we know what happened so let's talk about some of the special air-cooled 911s. Um, <clears throat> and I think probably the first one is the 1967 911R. Exceedingly yeah. rare car. Yeah. Um, have you driven one? Yeah. Oh, have you? Yeah. yeah, I've driven the one, actually. Go on. Oh, God. Let's have the story, then. Of the car itself and of you getting to drive uh, the car. So, so there was... The, I, someone who knows more about these things than I do is going to come and tell me how absolutely wrong I am. My, my understanding is that... Um, they made one aluminium 911R, <laughs> entirely out of aluminium. Um, and that's the car that I drove. Uh, oh. It was the prototype. Uh, the 911R's greatest achievement was winning the Marathon de la Route, the 84-hour race hmm. at the Nürburgring, which I think we've talked about on this podcast Wait, before. Quite we? recently, yeah, yeah. Quite recently. So we won't, we, 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 we won't dwell on that. Um, but it was an ultra-light. It's still, to this day, the lightest 911 that there's ever been and although 911s had been racing pretty much since 911s had been around this was the first car that porsche had built with competition in mind um and it was yeah it was just the ultimate uh it had a full race engine in it and uh, so the same engine that they were putting in things like the 906 um prototype um so i'm trying to remember i think it was still a two liter but it, it would have had you know 200 and a bit horsepower twin plugs heads and and everything else it weighed i think under 800 kilos oh. uh, it was you know it was unbelievable and uh yeah the, the the car certainly lived and i think probably still does in the uk um and i drove it at brown's hatch um the owner who lives certainly then maybe still lived in central london drove it to brown's hatch um and we had the full i can't remember why but we had we had the full grand prix circuit and the noise this thing made mm. it sort of sounded like a lancaster bomber it's it sounded completely different to what i expected i thought it to be this little scream it didn't it had this sort of deep, mm. um and it was it was quite intimidating because obviously it was quite a rare quite a valuable car um but I just went hoofing it around. I just had just an absolute ball. And it just felt different to any other 911 I've driven, I guess, because it was just so unbelievably light mm. um, and nimble and agile. And yeah, um, wow. it was an incredible machine. So that, was the, that must have been the first 911 with real motorsport style engineering. It, it, from Porsche. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And you think about all the road going 911s that have some sort of track uh, Focus GT3s, GT3 RSs, um, the very first RS, the 2.7 of 73, they all owe something to the 911R, don't they? They, they do. They do, yeah. Lighter, uh, more I, power, more focus. Yeah, yeah. and and, and, and we're going to do competition on another podcast, but you know, it was after that that Porsche suddenly, suddenly started thinking, actually, we can really, really leverage this car um, and get it to do stuff for us. So, you know, 911R comes out in 67, wins the Marathon de la Route, 68 is winning the Monte Carlo Rally. That wasn't an mm. R, that was a T. That was mm. the base spec car, yeah. um, which wow. was really, really clever. Um, 
we'll get back to this but yeah they used the tea because it was you know they had to homologate a car and the tea was because it had no nothing on it because it was a poverty spec car mm. it was the lightest the light one yeah it was the light one so they <laughs> called it the tea but it had i, I, I suspect it didn't have a part in common with a normal tea but there you go so um i've just mentioned the 2.7 rs now yeah. would you have what's more special in your eyes the 911r or the 2.7 rs oh the r yeah yeah, I mean the two point seven RS was a wonderful. I mean, it was a it was a true homologation special. Mm. Um, again, I've been lucky enough to um, drive a couple of them, and they're, I mean they're beautiful, they're wonderful. And that two point seven engine revving round to seven and a bit thousand RPM, um, beautiful steering, fully sorted car, beautifully behaved, looks incredible. You know, with the ducktail, the Burzel spoiler, all of that sort of thing. Great car. But you know, come on, the 911R, first mm. ever competition Porsche, um, that light made in such... I can't remember how they made, but it was like, I don't know, 25? I mean, tiny, tiny numbers. Mm. Um, yeah, the 911R, to me, in, in some regards, I guess because it's the lightest 911, it's one of the very rarest 911s there have ever been, is right up there, in my mind, among the most special 911s that there have ever been of any kind. Mm. So I, you mentioned the 2.7 engine. I haven't driven a 2.7 RS, but I've driven a 2.7 Carrera from, I guess, mid-70s. Um, with I don't know if it's exactly the same state of tune, but it's the same yeah, engine. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, mechanical fuel injection, 2.7. Yeah. Yeah. It's a 200, same power, 210 horsepower. Yeah. And it is a gorgeous, gorgeous motor. Yeah, it is. It's lovely. It's strong. It's talky. It revs well. Sounds fantastic. It is a wonderful thing. Um, what you should do, what we should get you to do, if you haven't done it, is you need to go and drive something like a 1970 or 71 2.2 911S. Okay. Because they're screamers. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, a 2.2 911S, 180 horsepower. You know, in, you know in, in terms, if you think of it in terms of specific output, mm. you know, Ferrari weren't getting anywhere near that then. Um, and you go and drive a 2.2 911S because it's so light. And it's, you know, that was one of the very first of the longer wheelbase cars. I think they, ch- they changed the wheelbase in 69. Um, and, you know, they sorted it all out. And, and to me, you know, these cars tend to hide a bit in the shadow of the 2.7 RS because the 2.7 RS, is, and I can use this word, has become an iconic car. Yeah. Um, the production cars, the sort of the normal cars that normal people went to go, they were a two, you know, even something like a 2.4 E, E standing for Einstein, I think, basically made fuel injected. Um, that was the sort of the mid-spec car. So Porsche tended to make um, three cars in their sort of standard range. So there was the T, which was the poverty spec car, which had everything taken out of it. Um, and then there was, well, at first it was the L, which became the E when they fuel injected it. And then there was the S, which was the hot one. Um, and even, you know, E's are a 2.4 E, 160 horsepower, probably more power, 165 horsepower, I think, so more power than an original 911S. Um, beautiful, beautiful car. And, you know, more mid-range torque. You had to drive an, an S really hard to get away from an E, to get away from an e and so I'm, I'm, so I'm disappearing into 911 geekdom here, aren't I? I can tell. But um, I, I just thought, that, you, know, it's, you know, it's not often that these cars get a chance to be heard because it's all yeah. you know, people think uh, you know early 70s 911 and they just see ducktails yes yeah, um yeah. and rsrs and all, and all this sort of stuff and, I, and all, the only point i want to make is um an early a normal early 70s 911 if it be in an e or an s with a 2.2 or a 2.4 liter engine they are superb cars mm, mm, there we go let's sing their praises a little bit then yeah um, so i just want to talk about a couple of other rs's so we have mentioned the 964 rs quite recently and i think 
what you've said about that car is that it's super stiff, super stiff, and probably works beautifully on smooth German roads or the track. Race track, it's track, it's, it's track car, yeah, yeah. But on yeah. typical bumpy British B road, it's a bit all over the place. Um, well, I, I mean, I found it was when I first drove it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I, just, I just found it got deflected, and it actually spoiled the handling rather than impl- in, in, improving it. Now, what about the nine nine three RS, a car you know well? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was waiting until you bring that up. Yes, yes. Um, for, for those who don't know, which is I'm sure almost all of you, I used to own a nine nine three RS. Um, which I sold for a sum of money that I, I don't think I've ever owned up to anyone how little I sold that car for. <laughs> well, um, you don't have to tell us. You don't have to tell us what you sold it for. But what what might it be worth now? Well, it's, it's a quarter of a million quid car, isn't it? I don't know. Oh. I, I, I try hard not to look. Um, there'll be people who know, but I suspect it's it's, it's a. I mean, particularly that car, which was it was a beautiful car. So many of those cars got crashed, mm. and this car. Funnily enough, it's still owned by the bloke I sold it to. Surprise, surprise, because he's less of an <laughs> idiot than me. Um, and it was just, it was just a really, really lovely, pretty low spec, standard, uncrashed car. And it happened too. I can remember I went to the ring with it once with two other people who had them. Um, and for reasons I cannot explain, it just went better than the other two. There was mm. a blue car which wasn't good at all, and there was a rare, yeah, and then there was a red car which wasn't bad. Um, but my, my, it just flew. It was just such a sweet car. Um, and what I liked about it is unlike the 964 RS, um, it was much more, uh, user friendly. Uh, Mm. it had, it it had less uncompromising suspension, um, which means you really could. And I did, you know, drive it from home to the Nürburgring, do a couple of days at the ring, come home, do one at Spa on the way home and get home and the car would feel as good as it was the day you left. Um, it was a brilliant, beautiful car. Um, and I sold it because, um, me and my brother had this mad idea that we'd go racing. Um, and so we, we bought a Camaro. Um, so I sold the 911 for a disgraceful sum of money. Um, <laughs> bought a 911, bought the Camaro, did two seasons of racing at the end of which I had no money, no Camaro nine, and, and no 911. <laughs> Such as the cost of racing, but you know, and then children turned up and blew, yeah. you know, and so that was the end of well, that. So, but you've yes. been there, you've been there and done that. Um, I love the 993 RS. I think it is, I think it's quite like you know, the one you mentioned earlier, the, the Gen 2 997 GT3 RS. It's just one of those cars that just mm. hits the sweet spot. It just mm. it gets that 911 thing that it has to be usable. Um, and if you drive, you know, a, a modern GT3 RS is unbelievable, but it's a track car. Mm. Um, mm. A 964 RS was a tracked car, but a 993 um, RS or a 997 Gen 2 GT3 RS, they're just, whatever you do with them, they're just right. Mm. There's never an environment in which you think, oh, blimey, well, fine, but I wish I wasn't here. They just they just work. And that's what 911s are about, aren't they? Absolutely. Well, that, is, you, that really whatever is. Whatever you do with them, yeah. they can somehow just do it. And you, know, and, you, and, and you never find yourself sitting there thinking, oh, gosh, I wish I was in something else or I wish mm. I was somewhere else. You just, mm. whatever you do, wherever you are, you know, whatever your mood, they just do it. And that's what the best 911s do. Um, yeah. Well, there we go. So that's the story of the air-cooled 911. Um, that's episode one. We are going to do more later on in the year. I think we're probably oh, going to talk God, about... I could, do, I could water- do 10 episodes just on the air. We haven't know, even talked about SCs and Carreras. I know. And, I know. 
I know. There's so much we haven't gone into, but yeah, we're timing out, aren't we? There we go. So we'll do air cooled, uh, sorry, water cooled 911s next, and then we'll do the racing history. Yeah. Um, so there's still so but much we'll, to get But we're going to space into. them out. We're not going to give them, a, we're not going to no, give them no. three consecutive 911 podcasts. So no, no. Um, keep tuning in and at some stage we'll come back and do some more. Yeah. So um, to move things on then, we're, gonna, we're now doing uh, what goes up and we're going to talk to Chris from JBR Capital who can explain to us some of the trends that they're seeing in 2023 so far. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Um, now you're here to talk about the trends that JBR Capital is seeing so far in 2023. This is the end of Q1, um, so it's a good time just to sort of look back at the start of this new year um, and figure out what JBR Capital are observing um, in the marketplace. Um, so, I mean, first of all, is it busy? Is it quiet? What's, what's sort of going on at the moment? Yeah, I think it's fair to say the first quarter of 2023 has been very busy. Um, we've seen, as everybody knows, a series of base rate rises, I think 11 or 12 in total, um, starting from last year and, and actually most recently um, Thursday of, of last week. And that's taken uh, the cost people are paying to finance cars across the whole spectrum, really, not just our sector, which is luxury and performance, um, even in the consumer space as well. The average price people are paying for vehicles, as as people would know, known at the forecourt and online, etc., is more if you're choosing to finance them. And to be honest, as a business, we were never sure how that fast and accelerated rise in interest rates would affect end demand. Would people be spooked by the fact that their monthly payments were, were higher than they've been used to? Um, but actually, certainly in the sector that we operate in, which is average lender around seventy-five to eighty thousand pound, it hasn't suppressed demand at all. I think in most cases, it's kind of the demand is stronger than it was this time last year. So, people's willingness to pay a higher interest rate for these cars is definitely there. Demand has been significant. And I think it just shows the resilience of this sector, which is based around passion and a thrill of driving and enthusiasm that if people have decided they want to buy one of these vehicles, they're going to buy one of them, whether the APR is 7.9 or, or 10.9% generally. So I think we've been infused by people's willingness to ride that rate rise curve. Um, and certainly in, in quarter one, we've done more business in this queue than one than we did in the corresponding previous year in 2022. So. Oh. Things are moving in the right direction for us, definitely. I mean, that, 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 that is amazing. Do you, do you think that there, an element of it is that people tend to regard what's happening at the moment as being a short-term thing? I mean, we know we've got the government saying they're going to halve inflation by the end of the year. I think most people think it'll come down by more than that. So do you think, I mean, I, I think most people think this, what we've just had is the last interest rate rise for a while. Uh, and presumably people will be thinking, well, we're into this for, as a sort of long-term commitment. And over time, it may be a bit of pain in the short term, but I want the car now. Someone's coming up um, and, you know, over, over time it's going to come down. Yeah, definitely. I think the base rate, base rate is now 4.25% and it might get to 4.5 or it may have, may have plateaued. I think there's a couple of things which are happening. One is that after COVID, people are saying to themselves, do you know what? I'm just going to do it. I've always yeah. promised myself this thing and I'm just going to do it. And you only live once. And actually, if the monthly payment is £150 more than I expected, but I can afford to do that and my business is doing well and I'm doing well at work, then I'm just going to do it. So there's definitely a period after COVID that says, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. Um, and we've seen that. And, and we've seen people chop and change out of cars probably a bit more than they used to. They loan something for six months and, and go and get something else. I do think that because people are aware that rates have hopefully nearly reached their peak, 
that actually well, I might as well get on now because it's not going to get significantly more expensive for me to do so. So I'll get on now and, and see what happens. So I think there's a couple of things happening. I think manufacturers are starting to produce more cars again. So there are more cars coming into the market. Obviously, some of the production issues which happened during COVID helped um, stop those cars coming into the market. But now they're coming back again. That that picks everything up. It means the new car supply is more is, is faster, which means the used supply is moving quicker as well. So I do think there's more cars around and obviously manufacturers are doing their best to get people driving these vehicles. But it's a combination of things. But the resilience of the market, I think we're particularly pleased by because since we started the company in 2015, actually, we've not had to go through this significant rate rise cycle. And, you know, base rate during COVID was 0.1% and that's gone up to 4.25. But, yeah. but the appetite for people to purchase these cars on a very accelerated trail uh, remains. So I do think it's a combination of things. But um, but the, the, the COVID, I only live once. I'm going to do this while I can. There's definitely that sentiment still in the market. And do you see seasonality with the cars that people are financing through you so you know we've just come through winter are you seeing more uh suvs and four-wheel drive cars and then come spring and summer are you going to see more convertibles more sports cars does it happen that way yeah no definitely i think you you, you'd see that in any part of the of the sector but but we see it as well seasonality wise obviously we get peaks in march and september we do very limited new car sales i think 90 percent used 10 percent new for jbr but obviously the increase in new car sales in those two months spikes the used market so we're busy but you do see things in the winter you see defenders and range rovers and, and on the more luxury side you get urises and bentegas and cullinans and you know during the the winter months and in the summer as you expect you see more traditional sports cars. You see people purchasing GT3s and, and GT4s and in the Porsche world. And then you see more convertible cars picked up as well. So people are massively driven by seasonality, both in when cars are registered, but what the weather's doing as well. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. They always say, don't they, that if you want to buy a convertible, wait till winter because demand is going to be suppressed and you'll get a better price. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, and you know, the, the people that tend to finance with us, I'm always pretty clear on this. These are cars that everybody wants, but but nobody needs. So it's mm. it's a passion asset. You're, you're choosing to have one of these cars. And you might, during the summer, when the, the weather is better, choose just to have a convertible for three or four months. And then you might trade it back out in September or October for a, a more conventional, you know, road-going, everyday car. So the people that tend to finance with us are doing it because they're passionate about the cars. They've always had that car they wanted to own. And if they can do it for five or six months while the weather's good... They normally make the choice just to do it because you know that's that's what they care about. It's what they're passionate about. It's their hobby: buying cars, driving cars, experiencing them, having that pride of ownership is what what really drives them. Well, as I'm sitting here now, I can see the sun is shining outside. We're almost into April. The weather's going to be improving. Maybe I'll be having a look at what convertible I can get into this spring. Um, Chris, thanks for taking the time to come and talk to us. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. See you soon. What Goes Up is sponsored this week by car finance specialist JBR Capital. We've been working with JBR Capital for a while now and it's been a brilliant partnership for us. High-end car finance is all the company does, meaning it understands the car market and car buyers better than most. So before you buy your next sports car, supercar, classic car, luxury car, even a brand new car, go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. Visit jbrcapital.com or click the link in description. And this bit is important. Tell them the intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.
So we've got a listener question coming up, and it is 9-11 themed um, to suit the the topic of this episode. Uh, But before that, please remember to rate and review the podcast. And actually, more importantly, hit the follow or subscribe button. It takes seconds to do, and it really, really helps us. So whichever app you're using to listen to this, please hit follow or subscribe. Um, So the listener question comes from Chris Allen, uh, and he says... How has the 9-11 been so successful in motorsport and on the road for so long when ultimately it's fundamentally flawed by its weight distribution? Now, that's something we sort of touched on earlier on, wasn't it? And the fact is, from a a physics point of view, having all that weight out the back where it's a pendulum trying to rotate the car is all wrong. But, 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 but the 9-11 has been so successful. I mean, well, in competition, it's... It it is, but the the disadvantages of it, you can mitigate. Seriously mitigate, and the advantages, you know, it's not as if the layout from a competition point of view is not without its advantages. Anybody driven a nine eleven um, will tell you on a track they come out of corners like a cork out of a bottle, um, and y- your speed down any given straight is it, it tends to be determined by the speed at which you come out the previous corner, and if you're in a car which because it has so much traction allows you to get back on the power that much earlier you're going to come out the corner that much quicker you're going to go down the straight that much faster it's 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 as simple as that and so the layout is it is flawed but it's actually nothing like as flawed from a competition point of view as you know in your head you might think um you know it has other advantages too um you know the flat formation gives you a very low center of gravity you haven't got you know a big fat engine getting in the way of the airflow at the front um and yeah and and, you know it's you know you have you have light steering It, it does just work for a for a load of different reasons and the things that makes it not work you can and porsche have largely engineer your way out of um which which they have done as we discussed in the podcast it took them some time to do it um but the disadvantages you can get rid of while at the same time maintaining the advantages um and it's probably technically ultimately not quite as good as a mid-engine car um but the differences are not so great that you know that the, the engineers have not been able to find their way around them and the 911 has always been relatively speaking a light and compact car hasn't it compared to a lot of the the opposition small and compact which really helps and light um but actually it's it it is interesting that with the latest rsr porsche put the engine in the middle yes so that you know even porsche determined that there is um a a balance advantage in shifting and spinning the engine around and putting it in the middle of the car Uh, ultimately Um, of course yeah of course and 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 the funny thing is the the efforts that porsche has had to go to particularly with the cayman to make sure that it's never quite as fast (laughs) as a if you look at a gt4 rs cayman and a gt3 911 you think well essentially got the same engine and yet a gt3 is like nine seconds quicker around the ring Mm. and then you look at all the things that they give the 911 um but don't give the Cayman just to make sure that that differential is maintained. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't get into them now, but um, they are very different cars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, there you go, Chris. Thanks for your question. Keep your questions coming across um, and we'll do another next week. Bye.